Well, we gather as the Christ Journey family once again at the response, as our response to God's invitation. The scripture says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help for our time of need. And so we are saying, yes, Lord, we will meet you here. And to those of you visiting and uh, connecting with us on our physical campuses, God bless you. To those of you that are joining us from your own homes, we just pray God's blessing to meet with you in that space. But may God, let's just give each other the benefit of our prayers for God's blessing to do what he would desire and take us to that next level with him as we share from his word today. The storyline's a familiar one. Husband and wife, legally married but not living matrimonially or treating each other the way they promised they would on their wedding day. And you see that storyline in books, movies, uh, TV shows, media, all are filled with the casualties of failed marriage. Most recently, we saw a report regarding Bill and Melinda Gates. I know you've seen it, telling us that they just became part of the club, the club that no getting married couple ever plans on joining. You know what I'm talking about, right? The divorce club. I ask each couple that I'm privileged to officiate their wedding, we gather together for a little bit of marriage prep time, and I always ask them, what are you going to do when trouble comes? Now, you know, because you may be, maybe you're going to be exempt from trouble, but most all of us, uh, trouble comes. And no couple yet in the decades of my ministry has ever said, oh, we'll divorce, of course. You know, they never say that. They never say, oh, well, we're going to separate, and then we're going to hurt each other deeply, and then we're going to let the lawyers work out the details. No. They, there are other options, they say, um, to, to build the marriage they want instead of the one that they're in. And, of course, the Gates didn't ask me to officiate their wedding. You're not surprised. But you know what? That doesn't keep me from treating every couple that I wed as if they are the top 1% of the top 1%. And I'm not talking about net worth. I'm talking about personal worth. Every person has infinite worth before Almighty God. There are no throwaway people. Every person, every human being is an image bearer of the Most High God. And God came in Christ incarnate to offer himself in love for every person. That's how much you are worth. Now, when our culture talks about worth, we usually talk about money. We idolize money. Now, we never say, oh, we worship money, you know. But what we, what we think is that money is, gonna, is what, really what you need. Money is all you need. And if you have enough money, then you can deal with what you need. Or we say it's something like this, you know. Oh, no, I know money doesn't buy happiness, but it can sure make misery a lot easier to live with. So we imagine and then something like this makes news. And people are shocked that the royal couple of high tech couldn't make it work. And somebody has said, maybe you, hey, isn't Gates worth like $127 billion? And then somebody else might say this, well, you know, statistics say that half of all marriages end in divorce. Maybe you heard that one. Now, some are saying during the COVID season, the numbers are down. 
But I'm thinking, you know, if you find yourself among the number, it's not just a statistic, is it? Divorce is a Richter scale event that's been compared to amputation without anesthesia. There's plenty of hurt to go around, and not only for the couple that's involved, but for the people that they love and love them, for their kids, for their kids' kids, for their extended family, for their friends. It's like Richter scale event, and the aftershocks affect entire populations, and for many of us, this isn't just talk. You know what I'm talking about. It makes us wonder sometimes. What's my future going to be like? Does my family have a future? Marriage and family can get complicated, we say. And so there are entire generations who are just like checking out on marriage. This is strange. In some circles, marriage commitments and weddings are way up, and in others, they're like, oh, not so fast. After what I saw in my life growing up or after what I see in others, and the pain there, you know, you know what, some just opt to, let's just live together. And here's what I want to tell you about that one. That's a whole other set of issues that come with it. But here's another statistic. This is from my own data research. If you're thinking, hey, maybe that's how I would escape the pain. Maybe that's how I would escape the, the turmoil and the turbulence, the hurt and the trouble of marriage. Here's another statistic for you. 100% of all couples have trouble. And where love is involved, pain is involved. C.S. Lewis said this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. To love is to be vulnerable. So you know what? As shocking as hearing another story of celebrity infidelity, the Bible the book of Hosea in the Bible is even more shocking. Maybe you've never read it. I'm going to tell you some of the story. God is in love in this story. God is in love. And the bride of his betrothal would rather be with other partners. She mouths her allegiance. I love you. I worship you. You're so awesome. But she doesn't mean it. She doesn't mean it. God is in love, and the bride that he so longs for of his betrothal would rather be with her. She prefers the company of false gods to the real thing. She wants the one that is going to give her what she wants on her terms, so she thinks. And um, the book of Hosea, meanwhile, God, God's heart is aching and breaking. One of the great surprises of this book, which, by the way, is one of the most raw and ragged-edged stories in the entire Bible, one of the big surprises is that it is God who is going through the pain. It's God who's experiencing the rejection. And his people don't see it. They, like, they don't get it. 
They just want more stuff. They think God is supposed to give them more stuff. They're having success. They're having prosperity. They want more stuff. And they're so self-absorbed, they don't think or see for a moment that God is experiencing pain in the middle of this. So you know what God does? He decides to mirror image what he's going through, his pain and his heartache, to his people kind of get in their face through one of their own, whose name is Hosea, the prophet, the preacher. And he instruct, instructs his preacher to go marry a wife who won't be faithful to him. Can you imagine? Marry a woman that won't stay true to you or stay in your bed. And so he does. His prophet is obedient. And by the end of chapter 1, he has three children, but only one of them would pass the Hosea paternity test. Today in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to see more plainly than ever that Hosea's wife is clearly not staying true to him, but we're invited to see it through God's experience, through what God is feeling. What is God going through with his people who are being unfaithful to him? What does it feel like to have God's beloved betray and God is truly torn. I don't know if you write in your Bible like I do, but if you do, here's something that I have written in the top of mine on chapter 2. God is torn. That's what's going on here. You want to be invited into the deep pain of God through Hosea. That's what you're going to see here. Sometimes I think of God as distant or stoic or like above the fray of pain and abuse. I seldom... Uh, connect feelings of heartache, grief, hurt, and injury to God at all. But the story of Hosea is telling me, hey, Bill, there's a whole lot you don't see about God that's going on, and, and I'm being invited in or to go deeper in it and to imagine and allow my mind and my soul and my heart to be penetrated with something God is going through. That's what's happening in this story. The story of Hosea is telling us, you know, there's a lot of hurt going on on God's end of this equation. Now, when you get hurt, let's just speak humanly for a second. When you get hurt, what do you do? You react, don't you? And sometimes, here's what we say, hurt people hurt people. When you get hurt, somebody's going to feel your, your pain, and you're going to be part of it, right? I'm not saying that's what's happening here. I'm just saying that you're raw, and you're real, and you're in the middle of it sometimes, and your words are full of pain. And sometimes people that love each other and live up close to each other say things that later they have to back up and come back to, and they say something like this, you know, I didn't really mean that. It was my pain talking. I was hurting. Well, in chapter 2, God is speaking through Hosea as his voice about his beloved bride Israel and their betrayal of him, their unfaithfulness to him. And here's what Hosea says to his kids. Verse 2, rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. She's not my wife. I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will, and you get this feeling like this, oh, something's about to happen here, you know. This is one of those stop that or else things. That It's like when a parent says, you know, don't make me come over there. You stop that or else. 
Do you ever, when your parents said that to you, do you ever want to find out what the, I wonder what the or else is. You know, and then you just push it a little bit farther. This is kind of the emotion that we're feeling building in the story here. And so what happens in chapter 2 is that God gives a list through Hosea of 12 otherwise I will, I will statements, like threats that are bubbling up, like erupting out of this raw place. I will strip her naked. I will make her like a parched desert. I will not show love to her children. They're children of adultery. The mother's been unfaithful. She's conceived them in disgrace. She said, oh, I will go after my lovers who give me my food, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, my drink. She has no clue, Israel, that it's God who's been taking care of her, putting the food on the table, putting the clothes on the back. You know, God's, God's, so God says the next thing, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I'm going to wall her in so that she can't get out. And then she's going to say, oh, I will go back to my husband because it was better off. I was better off then than now. And God thinks maybe if I do that, she'll see that I'm the one who's been giving her the grain, the wine, the oil. I'm the one who's lavished on her silver and gold, the jewelry, It's God's way of saying, I'm your protector, I'm your provider, I'm your sustainer, I'm your lover, I'm here for you. But then he says, oh, but you know what she's done? She's just taken everything that I've given her and she spent it on her lovers. False gods in the desert, false gods of idol worship. And so he picks up the list again, verse 9, I will take away the grain, take away my new wine, I will take back my wool and linen, verse 10, I will expose her lewdness, verse 11, I will stop all of her celebrations, all those spiritual festivities, verse 12, I will ruin her vines and fig trees, this is intense, isn't it? Which she said were her pay from her lover's. I will make them a thicket. I will punish her for the days that she burned incense to false gods. And when she decked herself in rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me? She forgot. God's being cheated on. And this is like a huge cry of holy pain, anguish, grief, hurt, heartache, There's lacing of threats in here. You know, this is raw. This is real. What God's going to do? Because she shares my name, but she's not not sharing my bed. This is like a sad country song. (laughs) And then right in the middle of the pain, read it for yourself, but right in the middle of chapter 2, in the middle of all this eruption of pain, The the mood shifts. It changes, and God starts a new list. Verse 14. This list is longer than the threat list. (laughs) And it's a list of intentions, a list of blessings. It's a different approach. It's a new plan. It's like God saying, oh, wait, I'll get her off to be alone with me, distraction-free, and I will allure her. I'm going to try to woo her again. Verse 14, I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Let's get alone together. Verse 15, I will give her back her vineyards. I'm going to make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And God dreams of hearing her sing a song that he had heard her sing before. Sometimes I'll hear Lisa singing in the middle of the day in the house. And it made me think of that when 
but said, God here is thinking, ah, maybe she'll start singing again. She will say to me, my husband, and I will remove the names of the Baals, the fertility gods, the false gods that she's been following from her lips, verse 18. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. And I will abolish violence, abolish battle from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. Would that be amazing? Would we love for God to do that right here in the 305? You know, could God just abolish violence, abolish battling from the land so that everybody could be saved? Could you imagine hearing the news report? Day 327, and there's been no act of violence reported in Miami-Dade County. This is unprecedented. That's what God is saying. All the hostility and the animosity that's coming up in your culture, in your life, in your society because you have left me. I can fix that. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Never let you go. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. You may not be able to do that, but I can, God says. I will betroth you in faithfulness. Verse 23, I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. God has a marriage dream for his people. You see it? With him, and it is larger than all of their infidelity. This is incredible. It is larger than all of their wandering behavior. God's love is bigger than the sum of human rebellion and sin. So here's the point. If you've been wandering from God and you started drifting away and it doesn't feel like it used to and you've been slip sliding down that slippery slope of disobedience, here's the question for you. Which list would you like God to visit you with? The threat list or the blessing list? Because I can tell you, God loves you. He knows you. There are no throwaway people. And we get ourselves into trouble. And God doesn't mind sounding the trouble alarm. But he wants us to come home to him. He says here, you know, through, through Hosea's experience, God is inviting anybody who's paying attention into his turmoil. His bride has broken her vow, and God wants to stay true to her in spite of it. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, we said that each week as we study through this uh, incredible, challenging story, that we're going to look for three lessons. One, about our relationship with God as he brings salvation to the world history. Two, about our relationships with one another, our marriages, our families, the way we treat one another. And then three, how the church can be of help How do the people of God come alongside in the midst of a world like this? And so first, let's just get a few about our relationship with each other, our relationship with humans. God's emotional wrestling here tells me this. When we experience the complications and the contradictions of human relationships, sometimes it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. 
there's a lesson. God doesn't pretend like everything's okay. Hey, I'm God. I'm good. It's not. And neither is he. There's something wrong. Something has gone wrong. God is torn. And we're supposed to see that if we're paying attention. God is hurting. And sometimes when you're human, hurt people hurt people. Well, God is hurting. What's happening here? You ever feel like making threats to the people you love? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of some of those. Maybe you've been on the giving end of some of those. Maybe you've had to back up and say, hey, wait a minute. I know what I said, but I didn't really mean that. There's a lesson there about humility and about finding, letting your heart hurt find its voice in a productive way. But here's another lesson. Oh, my goodness. What if you were to turn your threat list... Because sometimes those things bubble up, don't they? And then they just erupt out, and then there it is, and you got your list out there, and you're going to. But what about this? If we were to behave like God behaves, we would turn our threat list into an intentional list of blessing. Promise list. Think about that. What kind of blessing? What kind of. This is a growth step. You want to follow your Lord in a situation that's hard. Here's the growth step quality time together, creating a safe place to stop fighting, to nurture the covenant that you share that brings blessing, to celebrate your betrothal in compassion and faithfulness, and show love to the one that maybe you even called, not my loved one. See, this is pretty raw, isn't it? But I'm, what I'm saying here is that every couple, every human couple can learn some emotional intelligence from God right here. To feel what you feel and realize that sometimes it's really okay to not be okay, but you, you got to pay attention to what's happening. Or then we could say it this way, be aware of your pain, but be willing to turn it into promise. There's the growth step. Now, we've been living through some really hard times, stress-filled times, and the people that matter most to us are many, many times the ones that are closest to our pain, sometimes even causing our pain. What if we were to draw near to God in the midst of our pain and invite God to pour healing, mercy, compassion, grace, covenant faithfulness, and to restore the feeling of where those places have just gone raw or where they've been neglected or where they've been calloused and where we're not even feeling anymore. They're just kind of numb that we could let God meet us with his unconditional covenant love there with healing. Sometimes the best defense is a strong offense. Relationally, that's true too. So here's one of the answers to those places where the church, what can the church do when you find yourself in a hard place like that? Well, we come alongside with tools and resources and workshops and conferences, and we got one. Our group's ministry is put together with, for marriage renewal, marriage reinvigoration after the season we've been in for couples with our friends at Wellspring. And uh, those types of experiences are where Lisa and I, through the years, are reminded that we're on the same team and want to fight for the same win. Sometimes in my fallen human ego maleness, I just want to win. And it's so much better 
when we're on the winning team and I get to help us win together. The celebration's much better if you, if you understand what I'm trying to say. How much better could it be for us both to win and I could bring my strength of commitment and focus to help us win together. That's what this is. So we've been, Lisa and I have participated in workshops and enrichment events like this all through the years of our marriage. I hope you'll do it too. You, we will benefit together. Marriage can be challenging even on a really, really good day, but it can be so rewarding when we attend to it. Marriages are like gardens. Gardens, you know, when tended, gardens can produce fruit that's health-giving and life-giving and beautiful. But the seeds have got to be planted, the weeds have got to be pulled, the uh, water has got to be poured on, and the sun has got to shine, the warmth of that sun. And then when you don't leave the fertilizer all piled up in one place, you know, you kind of spread it out. Most marriages come with an ample supply of fertilizer but you just don't want to leave it piled up in one place. You want, to, you want to learn how to not let it pile up. So years ago when Lisa and I were participating in one of these types of uh, marriage enrichment, strengthening events, I heard a fellow pastor say this. My wife and I decided we wanted to make our marriage last and we wanted to make it fun. I said, well, those are two goals that I'd like to have in my life. Lisa agreed. So here are our marriage goals. You want to know what your pastor's marriage goals are? Make it, make it last, make it fun. You know, that makes it harder to leave. <laughs> you want to make it fun, and then you, so you make it last. Make it, every day when I get up, every week that I'm living through, every month that we go through, whatever the crisis is, we got to find a way to make this last and make it fun. And then when you run out of ideas, you keep on growing. You keep participating. You keep learning, like events like this. Keep on growing. Why? so that you can, by faith in love, turn the pain into promise. It is hard to have a long-term relationship with a fallen human being. But God's grace in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with grace and truth teaching that can help set us free, can cause it to flourish in a new way. And that's what we're calling this event, Flourish. You want to sign up now? Uh, July 17th and 24th is the workshop. You can, we're going to do it in person and digitally. So however fits you best, then you can choose to that. And I hope that you'll join us and that we'll all feel the lift because of it. Now, if you're sitting and thinking, hey, but wait, I'm not married. What's about, what about me? Well, there's something here for you. We're talking about our relationship with God and our relationship with ourselves as we relate to one another. And maybe you would be willing to admit that you've got some pain going on too. Then here's the question Hosea would ask. Would you let God meet you in that pain and maybe talk about some of his own? About your relationship with God? That God might want to draw close to you and the way to do that is to get vulnerable enough together to hear each other's truth and then step into it. Would you be willing to... If God wanted to get closer to you, if God wanted to get, go deeper with you, if God wanted to draw you into his arms, would you be willing to go there? That's the question that Hosea raises. Because his people at the time weren't. They were saying, no, I got my own stuff going on. And off they went. 
So maybe it would be helpful for me. This is dangerous territory. I'll go ahead and say it up front, but this is dangerous territory because the, the process of physical adultery and spiritual adultery both follow the same pattern. Where do they start? With dissatisfaction, disappointment. Either it can be real or it can be imagined or perceived, but the relationship you're in isn't doing for you what you want, and so that disappointment, that dissatisfaction gets your attention, and then that dissatisfaction from unmet expectations diverts your affection to another direction, away from the beloved, if the beloved is your partner or the beloved is your God, and there's something you want out of life and God isn't giving it to you and you're dissatisfied, so you'd say, well, I think I'll just try this and maybe it'll be faster and, and it'll take you, it'll get what you want quicker and God's taking way too long. Instead of waiting on God, you just go your own way. Both physical and spiritual adultery involve a process then of deterioration in the relationship over time. It doesn't get stronger if you turn away from God. You're not going to get closer and go deeper and get stronger in Him. It's not typically an impulsive decision that just says, hey, today I think I'll throw away my faith in God. No, it usually is an incremental deterioration of drifting away. And then it usually involves the creation of some kind of deceptive fantasy. Oh, now that's what I've got in mind. You know, I got this other thing, a delusional truth takes hold. And as it does, that it's accompanied, Scripture says, on a couple of fronts. One thing that leaves you is your spiritual sight. You start going blind. You don't see how temptation is taking hold of your mind while it's doing it, and then there's a loss of feeling that usually accompanies it. That's what the Bible calls hardening of the heart. And you don't always feel it when it's happening because you don't feel what's happening. You're going blind and don't see it, and you're losing your sense of feeling, and you don't feel it, and then suddenly, where's God? There must not be one. And since it's your own voice telling you that truth, you believe it. This is why it's so important to pay attention to your heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Guarding your heart means pay attention to your place of risk. We place ourselves at risk. If you are angry, if you are lonely, if you are tired, then you are at risk. And I'm saying to you, we've just come out. We're coming out. We're not even all the way out yet. We're coming out of 14 months of fatigue and fight in facing this COVID exhaustion. Guarding your heart means becoming aware of those indicators on the dashboard of your soul and then letting them push you closer to God instead of farther away. Does that make sense? And then as you get closer to God, he's going to remind you how loved you are and how special you are and how much value you have. And then you're going to want to love him back because he first loved you. And he's going to remind you of all those things. Peel away those scales. He's going to warm up your heart. And then you're going to say, ah, this is better. That's what this story is in here for. And God is torn. Chapter 2 turns now to chapter 3. God has turned. 
Oh my goodness, read it for yourself. Ask God to give you insight to understand, how does this apply to me, Lord? Because then what God tells Hosea is, I want you to go back to your wayward wife, and I want you to love her. I want you to buy her out. You know, she's been on her own for a while, and her expenses have not gone away. She's got to cover costs, so you know what she's done? She's sold herself. She sold herself. Some scholars think she sold herself to be a temple prostitute in the pagan temple that's just down the road. Some scholars think that she sold herself into uh, slavery, which at that time would most likely involve the infidelity that we've been talking about. And some think that she sold herself to be a mistress for a single, uh, another man. We don't know. But here's what God tells Hosea. The Lord said to me, Go and show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And though they turn to other gods, God says, so here's what Hosea says. So I bought her, bought her back 15 shekels of of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. That's six ounces of silver and 10 bushels of barley. Not much. She'd really sunk. Verse 3, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. Many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man, and I will live with you. Hosea buys her freedom, then brings her back home into his vow. She's broken hers, but he's welcoming her back into his vow. And she and he will be each other's. What we got here, brothers and sisters, is a picture of God's grace. She didn't earn it. She couldn't deserve it. But God told his servant, here's how I want you to give it. And you give grace. And then God gives him a prophetic word about Israel's future. He says there's coming a period of time. In, for many days, they will be without a king, without prince, temple, sacrifice, priest, or idol. Scholars believe this is a prediction of the coming time of exile, 70 years of exile. But then, verse 5, afterward, the Israelites will return, and they will seek the Lord their God and David his king, and they will come trembling to the Lord to his blessing in the last days. That's a word about the coming Messiah the messianic kingdom, and after they've been away from God because he's going to let them have what they desired, life without him, and then they're going to come back saying, oh, but your Messiah is coming, right? And of course he does. And God wants his grace to overgrace his people's sins. Here's how Paul writes about it in Romans 5. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. We don't have to find our own way back. We don't have to create our own righteousness. But when we turn to him, he applies the righteousness of his grace to us in Christ, our Messiah, who went to the cross to die for all of our sins and rose from the dead, that his love could cleanse us and fill us and free us and bring us back in to the intimate relationship with God that he desires us to have you got to be asking yourself, have I been drifting? Have I been wandering? Have I gotten off track? Is that why I haven't been feeling the presence of God? The way? Is that why I haven't been sensing the love of God? I'm just saying, if you're not going to ask it here, where are you going to ask it? 
And then if you're going to say, well, I'm not okay, can I tell you something? It's okay to not be okay. That's what we learned, isn't it? But you got to be aware. Be aware that you're not okay, and then there's something you can do about that. You can turn your pain into promise by bringing it to the God of Hosea. Is this his invitation to you today? Maybe not in a physical relationship, but maybe. But maybe in your spiritual relationship, it's time to come home to God. We're going to pray to that end right now. Gracious Father, our protector, our provider, our sustainer, our partner in life, our lover, we thank you that we get to be a part of the bride of Christ and that you love us with an everlasting love. And we are so thankful that when our vow breaks, Yours is solid, and that you welcome us into the new covenant of your love through your blood, the cleansing of our sin, the filling of our lives, and the correcting of our compasses so that we can find our way into fullness again. Lord, what is it that you're wanting to say to your people? Would you do it now? Holy Spirit, we're listening. Is there something that he's telling you, friend, that it's time to let go of? Is there a burden to drop? Is there a, a guilt trip to leave behind? Is there shame that you're supposed to leave at the cross? Is this the day that you, like the prodigal, come to your senses and say, I got to get back home to God? And then, out of his love, love the ones that you live with in your space. Love your husband, love your wife, love your parents, love your children. Love them with the love of God, the way that God loved the Israelites. Love them that way. Thank you, Lord, that that's the way you love us and more. You've put your spirit within us. We welcome you. And if this is your first step forward into a deeper relationship with God, then you might want to pray this. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I got problems. I've made mistakes. I've sinned. And I invite you to forgive my sins as I turn from going my way and learn to go with you. Thank you for the gift of salvation that I can receive freely. And I do. And thank you for hearing my prayer as I make it in your name. Amen.